Hello and welcome along to episode 11 of A Blank Canvas. On this episode, I had a great chat with Sophie Wright. Sophie is the first actor to appear on this podcast, which is very exciting in itself. We speak about how she broke into the industry, some of her lows, some of her highs, uh, being involved with the production of a film which is out next year. Also, her time on my Mad Fat Diary. There's so much we talk about. It's a very exciting pod. We also talk about mermaids. It'll make a lot more sense if you listen to the podcast, uh, because that's quite out of context, but it's true. This is episode 11 of A Blank Canvas with Sophie Wright. Welcome Welcome to A Blank Canvas with Cameron Rawson. Cameron Rawson. So Sophie, I want to start at the beginning. Okay. When... To, to make things clear, you're an actor by trade, but also have a lot of fun little uh, strings to your bow, which we'll discuss later on. But I want to talk about the, your, your sort of main, um, your, your main work, basically. When did you start acting? How did you get into it? Um, with acting, I started when I was very young. So I think my first professional job was when I was about 11 or 12, but I wanted to do it since being teeny tiny. Um, so yeah, it's been like something that's always been at the forefront of my mind since as long as I can remember, really. I don't remember ever really wanting to do anything else. When did you know that sort of, what's the, what's it, like pretend, pretending to be someone else or when did you realize that was an actual job? At what age or did, did your, did your mum and dad tell you this? Did you sort of figure out that it was something you could make a living from? How did that all come, come to light? So when I was really young, I was actually really shy. Like, um, you wouldn't believe it now, but I hardly spoke. And it wasn't until my teachers kind of put me on stage in the little like school shows, you know, that I suddenly came out of myself and I was like a different person on stage. So that was where it started to come from. And I realized that I was like, oh my God, I really enjoy this. Like, this is what, this is what I love. And then I did a um, so I joined like a little acting group locally when I was about nine or 10 and I did a competition, um, which is like a monologue competition and I won the whole thing and they were really impressed with me and they, I, they, they were just like, it was the first time someone had actually told me like, you were actually really good at this. So that was the point where I then started to, well, my mum put me into an agency and I then started going down to London every weekend to a school down there. And yeah, I got into their agency and then started working professionally. So do you think being thrown, what is it, essentially straight into the deep end by your teachers was a blessing in disguise? Maybe at the time you were a bit like, Ugh, but it, I guess it worked out. Yeah, definitely. I think like going from not doing, because a lot of people with acting tend to go through stages of doing like background work and then moving up whilst I seem to go from doing nothing to going straight into like lead roles. So it was all like a massive learning curve very quickly. I remember the first time being on set and then being like, oh, just make sure you stand on your mark and make sure you meet this and meet this eyeline. And I was just like, I have no idea what's going on. You're going to have to get back to <laughs> basics here. <laughs> How old were you when, so you were 11 or 12 when you booked your first uh, paid position, paid role? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's crazy to think. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, I can't even remember being 11 or 12, how, what, what my thought process was as a kid or 
anything. So that must have been, it's quite a strange, uh, it's, it's by no means a normal um, situation, environment, is it, to be on a set and being told and to, to do certain things and by a director and to be in front of a crew and a camera. But I guess, and if you've not done anything else, it, did it feel normal? Can you even remember? Yeah, it was sort of, it was like, I suppose I was quite mature at that age, naturally. So it didn't feel like I was out of my depth. I kind of understood what I needed to do, but it was definitely like, like you said, like throwing it at the deep end kind of thing. But I was very determined that that was what I was going to do. So I absolutely loved every minute of it. Do you feel there's a, because you've done both stage and screen, right? Yeah. So not so much stage. But um, yeah, not so much stage, but a lot of film and TV. Do you feel like it's a completely different ball game in front of a camera than in front of a live crowd? Oh yeah, absolutely. I feel like with theatre, it's um, you kind of, you have the audience there. So it's that kind of interaction and things like that. But also it's the same thing every night. And you obviously get the buzz of the audience, but with the camera, it's obviously much more close up. It's much more naturalistic. Um, and you only do it so many times until you get the shot so you can kind of put everything into it. I personally prefer doing camera work because I don't know, I get quite bored easily. So <laughs> I'm not, I'm not very good when I have to do the same thing lots and lots of times. So I've got in my head, like, uh, I'm, I'm trying to like imagine a set and I think I've, I've only ever been on one, uh, real TV set myself and that was on BBC breakfast, which is obviously not the biggest set in the world, but. I've only seen sets on, well, I've seen sets on TV shows, which is quite obviously ironic, but do you, do you think these sets that are on TV shows are a good representation of what sets are like in real life? Or is it, is that just like a, is that just like a bit of a facade what you see on TV? Oh no, definitely. Um, it, I mean, it depends on, on the show, but generally it's, it's a good representation. Um, you do have your trailers and most of the time, like even the lead role though doesn't have an entire trailer. The trailers are split up. So there's like three, three parts to a trailer, um, like compartments. Um, but you do have the like video village, which is where the director sits with the screen seeing everything and you have the guys with the boom. So I think generally it is, it is what you see. It's, uh, you know, I'm sat here just trying to like, uh, imagine being in a situation where I'm on set. Is there, is there, is there a situation where f- what, what you might see in a TV show again? Cause this is my only real reference in, so where, for example, someone's not allowed to speak to somebody else unless spoken to first, or is this all just something that, you know, you, you see online, but isn't actually true. Um, and I've not experienced that personally. I've, I've never been on a set where it's been like hierarchies or stuff like that. It's, have you heard of have you heard of other people who've experienced things like that? Um, not really, other than like I'd say like you have like rumors on the internet and stuff. Generally, every set I've worked on and even with big actors, everyone's been lovely and it's been very much like a family. Everyone pulls together and does what they need to do. Um, I'd say the only thing is like when people are acting, which I found really weird at first, but when when you're acting, none of the crew can look at you because obviously it can put you off. But I was just really confused at that first. And I was like, why is everyone turning away? <laughs> See, this is the thing. This is, this is all, the, all these little things like this that you just mentioned are all things that unless you're an actor yourself, you'll be completely oblivious to. You, you won't know that this is like, that, that, that is a thing. It's only, because it is, it's, oh, it's such a, uh, 
an unnatural environment where there's so many people. I mean, even having a camera right in your face, is that something, do you have to actively forget that a camera's there or is it always in your mind when you're acting? Well, it's very big, so it's hard to like completely <laughs> forget it's not there. But it's it's really interesting now, like once you've done it, is when like I, it's ruined TV and film for me. I can't watch a film without being like, I wonder how <laughs> they shot that. So for example, when you see people like laying in bed next to each other, they won't be acting to the person, they'll be acting to the camera. So it's more than likely the camera guy will be laid next to them with the camera in the face. You know, that's so bizarre when you, when you say that, because there's so many scenes where, that are obviously point, uh, so many shots that are point of view, where obviously you forget that it's, you're not seeing it through the actor's eyes, literally, it's the camera. Yeah, yeah. Wow, you've kind of ruined it for me now as well. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> So it's all right. So uh, let's go back to you being 11, 12. You've, you've, did you have to audition for this role or was it, did someone come and say, right, you've, you've fit the look or how did it, how did that come to be? So the first role I did was a voiceover role and I had to, um, I had to go into the audition and basically tell an emotional poem. So I told this poem and then I had the casting directors in tears and they basically were just wow. like, yeah, this, wow. they were like, you're perfect for it. So then I, but still at this point, I didn't really know how to act. I still don't think I know how to act, but um, they, they cast me and then it's just gone on from there. Touching base on what you just said about you, even, you know, after literally being paid to act, you don't think, uh, you, you know, what, 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 with what you said, but do you think that's something that every actor feels that, you know, even those that have won an Oscar, they feel like they're, they're, they've not achieved what they want to achieve or do you think it's do you think do you ever what I'm trying to say is I guess do you think as an actor or creative you you've it's hard to ever feel fulfilled for what you're wanting to do yeah I don't uh, I guess so I feel like I am I am fulfilled in what I do but I'm generally like I couldn't tell someone how they do how to do it if you does that make sense yeah, I guess it was in like sort of, you know how to do it yourself, but you don't know how to tell someone else how to do it. Yeah, so like um, I don't use particular techniques by by people or things like that. I just kind of So it's kind it. of like muscle memory, but for acting. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's interesting. So you were 11, 12 when you did the voice first voiceover work. When was your first in front of camera uh, TV work? Um, so I did that, I think I was 14, but it's quite hard to remember now. I think I was 14 and I did a show on Sky called Little Crackers where I played a young Jane Horrocks who at that point in her life, so I was playing her at 11, she was obsessed with Barbara Streisand and A Star Is Born. I don't know if you've seen that. Um, so she's obsessed with Barbara Streisand and A Star Is Born and she just wants to be like her. Um, so... So yeah, it's a really good little, it's a really good little short, short film. It's about 15 minutes long and it's really funny. Did you, do you remember when you first walked on set for that? Cause I imagine that was your first ever time walking on a set opposed to doing a voiceover. Yeah, definitely. Um, my mum came with me and she was just so excited about the whole experience. <laughs> so she was there with me and I remember just being like, I feel a little bit out of my depth now. Like we've, we've got this far, but. <laughs> Now I have to actually do it. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's I, I can't even imagine. So a along with walk, walking onto set for the first time, do you remember when you were, you were given 
the role when they said to you, right, that's it, you've got this role? Yeah, I can't explain what it feels like when you've, especially like, I think more so as I got a bit older as well, when I got a role, it was, it's just the best feeling in the world because you know there's so many people going for it and your chance of getting it are so low. So when you actually get that call to say you've been booked, it's just like a euphoric feeling. Would you say that is your biggest like pinch me moment or do you think that's something further along in your career where you've been like, wow, did that really happen? Um, I'd say my biggest like pinch me moment was probably Mad Fat Diary because that was the first thing that was like, it was on TV and all my friends were watching it and I was getting recognized places all the time. And it was, that was the first moment where I was like, oh, so this is what it's actually like. So that, I mean, okay, with, with that, did you enjoy more the fact that random members of the public were recognizing you or more the fact that your friends were like, oh my God, that's, that's Sophie, that's Sophie. I think like when, when I got recognized like in public, I just didn't really know what to say to people. Cause when they say to you like, oh, your tics are a mad fat diary. And I'm like, oh yeah. And then they like, look at you, like they expect you to do something. And I'm just like, yeah, cool. That's, <laughs> I mean, it is, I can't say I've ever experienced that myself, but I can only imagine it's again, I think the whole, the whole concept of being an actor is is, a, is far from natural, from the actual work itself to what comes with doing the work, i.e. being recognised, because, you know, it, it's, not, it's, not, it's not normal. It's not, it's, not, it's not what most people experience. Um, well, let, let's talk about this. So, again, with this, when did you, uh, when did you first find out that you uh, got this role? Uh, how did you celebrate? Was it something you thought you were going to get? Uh, Mad Fat Diary, do you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Mad Fat Diary was a horrendously long audition process. I think I had six six to eight auditions at the same time wow. that I was doing my GCSEs. So <laughs> I was going down to London every week, still not knowing that I'd got the part, trying to do my exams at the same time. I actually had my final audition on the same day as my final English GCSE exam. And they managed <laughs> to, the exam board let me do the exam and leave without speaking to anyone an hour earlier than everyone else going into the exam so that I could get down to this audition. Um, so I went and did my final audition and then I didn't hear, but one of my, um, one of my best friends was also auditioning and she heard that she'd got cast and I still hadn't heard. So I was then like, oh no, I've, I've made it this far, but I've not got any further. Cause obviously cast, the cast has been cast. And then about a week later, I got a call to say that I had finally got the role. <laughs> That's, uh, it, it, it's, uh, I mean, like you said earlier, you can't really put into words the, the feeling of, uh, of being cast in something you really want to do. How does the audition process work? So did, you, did your agent or the agency you're with, did they sort of say, right, someone's reached out? Did you reach out to them? How does this all work? Yeah, so it depends on, on just, just entirely on the role. A lot of the time now, because I've done quite a lot of stuff now, people come to the agency and ask for me. Um, but if otherwise, your agent should be constantly putting you forward for things. So there's things on Spotlight and loads of briefs that your agency will put you forward for. And then if you get the audition, you then get the audition and you go down, do the audition. And then it's just completely depends on the job. Some book off one audition rarely happens, but sometimes other than that, it's recall after recall after recall. Do you think there's a certain level of luck to being cast in a role or is 
Do you think there's different sort of factors other than being good, uh, good at acting? Yeah, absolutely. I think the good at acting part is probably about 2% of actually getting a role it's like what you look like that's very specific and very low as well (laughs) yeah genuinely because there's so many people who are good at acting so if you go like you'll go for most actors will go for hundreds of auditions before they get a role and it's just down to what you look like what your height is how you look next to the other person who's acting if the cast and director gets a good vibe from you your accent, literally anything can be like, that's why you didn't get it. Your hair colour, and maybe the cast wow. and director knows someone who looks like you and they don't like, and they so they get bad vibes. Just... That's so rough. So, okay, for people like myself and other people that aren't within the industry, a casting director, so it's not, it's not that they're specifically, their they're, they're specific position within the... Um, the production is to cast people for the certain roles? Yeah, so casting directors work independently. So uh, production will hire a casting director um, and their job is just to, is to, they don't, they don't have a final say on the casting, but they will gather everyone, do all the auditions and everything, and then they will send that to the directors, producers, and they have the final say. See, it's interesting when you say stuff like, if the casting director thinks you look like someone they don't like and all of this kind of stuff. So it's, so, okay, right. So for people that again, have not experienced anything like this, you're going to an audition. Are you sat in a room with 50 other people? Are you sat in a room with 10 other people? Are you in a separate room to everyone else? You don't know who's auditioning. Do you see other people auditioning? It really depends. So it completely depends on the audition and like the, um, I don't want to say standard, but like how how big the production is really. Um, so it can be an open audition where you go and queue up with 300 other people and just wait your turn. That happens a lot in, in theatre and musical theatre. It can be an invite audition, which is generally what they are, where you go into a room. You, you will generally see the other people who are there. You'll go into a room and then you just wait to be called. Then you go into your room one by one. Sometimes they'll bring two people in. So you're reading with someone else, like someone who's going through like your love interest, for example, they'll bring two people in together. Um, And on auditions like that, they often will ask people to stay in who they like and they'll bring in different people to read with them. It's called a chemistry read. Um, And then you also get your completely like closed off auditions where it's just you and you don't know, they don't let people kind of interact but that tends to be for the really big productions um, like things that like Pinewood Studios and stuff like that. It's, um, it's such a interesting idea. Like it's probably the longest job interview in the world, isn't it really? Uh, yeah, definitely. A, going, going for a role on a TV show or film. And how um, many job interviews do you have to go in and cry? <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. Well, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, I, you know, you know, when you're going for these, um, auditions is there i'm assuming you're in like a room and is it just the casting director is there a bunch of different people in there yeah that again depends sometimes it's just the casting director with a camera other times it's the casting director and the producer and the director and a camera guy and several assistants it really really depends you you don't know what you're walking in for would you say that getting well okay I'll, I'll, i'll ask this in a different way what would you say you're most proud of in terms of what you've achieved so far? Um, in terms of acting? In terms of acting, yeah. Probably, uh, oh, this is quite difficult. 
I mean, Mad Fat was huge. That was a great series. And I really enjoyed that. And I felt like I really played a good part in that. But I did a, a little series called Harriet's Army on CBBC. And that was set in World War Two, And that was just a very, uh, it was like a period drama. So I'd not really done this before. So it was, it was so exciting. And we filmed it at Beamish and it was all set up like it was World War Two, And we had the big, um, the big lorries and everything that the people were going off to war in. And yeah, that was probably one of the, one of the, the best things I've done. So do you, do you feel, uh, with what you're saying, do you feel that you get more excitement out of filming on a set or on location? Yeah, definitely. Cause that was, that was such an exciting set and it was like being fully immersed in it. Is that, would you say that's the biggest set you've been on so far then? Uh, yeah, definitely. It had the most extras and things like that. It was like a full party. So, okay, you mentioned extras. That's an interesting one. Uh, have you ever been an extra yourself? Yeah. So when I was uh, younger, I did Waterloo Road, I think, for one day. Oh, no. So how does being an extra work? Are you just like, kind of uh, just thrown into a big pool of people and you've, you're told to do certain things? How does that work? Yeah, being an extra is great. You're basically just um, the background of the scene. So you turn up, you get dressed up in however they dress you up, and then you just get to hang out in the background, basically. There's often a lot of waiting around. You can sit around for nine hours before they use you. But um, yeah, you just get to be a part of the scene. That's, uh, that's pretty crazy. So obviously you've achieved a lot in your life so far. Is there anything um, specifically you want to achieve? It's a very deep question, I know, but I'm always intrigued by people who are young in their career and if they've got anything that they, you know, they've got a little checklist like, yeah, right, I've done that, want to do that. Is there anything on there? Yeah, so a couple years ago, I was part of producing a film called The Drowning of Arthur Braxton, which is coming out next year. And I was a big part of the production team as well as acting in it and like putting it all together and organizing funding and all things like that. And I really enjoyed that and pulling everything together. But I would really like to produce another film and kind of be like the central control of it in a way. Do you feel that having acting experience helps with producing a film or do you think it kind of uh, has a negative effect? Because I don't know. I mean, well, well yeah. What is, is there a, uh, is there any, is there any help to being an actor or does it not help? I don't, I don't think it really influences it. I think the, that if you want to produce, it's more of a business mindset than acting. And it's about do, being able to create something that will be profitable. So I always wonder when I'm watching a film, when you, when you get to the credits and you see uh, all these names for like executive producer, producer, co-producer, blah, blah, blah. Can you shed light onto what these people do and how they get these jobs? Are these people the ones that have got the money and paying for everything? Or do they work for the, uh, do they work for the studio? Like how does, uh, yeah, what, what is their, what is, how, how do they, you know, their sort of role, I guess. Okay, this is quite a difficult question because it's quite confusing, but I will do my very best from what I know. Um, so starting at the top are your exec producers. Your exec producers are people who basically have an interest in the film, whether that's financial or are like... Um, so in our production, we have a big name in it. We have Johnny Vegas. Whilst he is obviously gaining financially from being in the film, he's also big name so we're giving him a percentage to be in it as well because right. we were working on a very low budget so we've offered him a percentage as well 
to be in the film. So he is also an executive producer. Um, and then your, our funders are exec producers. I'm an executive producer. And then you get your producers who are the people who actually do all the work of, of organizing the directors, everything, pulling everything together. And then you get everyone down from that. So you could do, you could do it like a, a chart. <laughs> so you get like your locations manager, you get your casting, you get, um, so your assistant director, this is the one that I think is most interesting. Your assistant director is basically the one who tells everyone what to do, um, which you wouldn't Wait. think so. Yeah, I'm confused with that one. Yeah, so your director directs the scene. So your director is in charge of the scene. Your assistant director is in charge of making sure that everyone is doing the right thing in the crew. So they're in charge of making sure that... Um, the, I think I'm saying this right. I might have to double check this, but I'm pretty sure your assistant director, yeah, your first AD makes sure that like sounds ready, that camera's ready, that all the props are in place, that your actors are ready and they're okay, that your script supervisor is um, is okay and ready to go, um, which script supervisor a whole other important role, which people haven't heard of. <laughs> so yeah, so they, they are in charge really over the director. Did, did- do you think someone new or even experienced within the game as an actor gets confused with who's who on set? Surely that's a game in itself. Oh yeah, absolutely. It takes a long time to kind of learn what people do and why they're there. And not so much why they're there, but like what, what their job is because everyone just seems to be doing everything. <laughs> so, you know, okay. So, you know, when you, uh, let's say you're going on set for the first time, and I mean, it must be overwhelming when you're, you know, 14, 15 or whatever age you were when you're going on set. I mean, how many people were on the crew for, for the, for the, for the, uh, what you were shooting when you were 14, 15? Um, oh gosh, I can't really remember, but it was still quite a big crew. It was still, I mean, it was a Sky production, so it's still a, probably like a 20 to 30 people crew. See, that's, 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 it's, it's crazy. It's crazy to think that there's so many people. And I, I, I imagine back then you had no idea who was what and what was who kind of thing. Yeah. And like having like your own makeup artist and then there being several other makeup <laughs> artists and someone who came in specifically to fit my wig. It was insane. I mean, the budgets must be, yeah, I, I don't, we, we won't even talk about the budget because that's the whole conversation itself with how much is spent, isn't it? Our film budgets are another, another level. Yeah. Um, okay. So, you know, when you've, uh, let's say you're finished shooting a, um, an entire series or an entire, um, production, um, is that it? You done? Is, are you completely done? Do you have any sort of, um, any input with anything or is that it as an actor that is? Uh, so generally you have ADR, um, which I can't remember what that stands for. I think it's auto dub recording or some, something like that. I can't really remember. It's just called ADR. And you basically go into a voiceover studio and it's like karaoke with yourself. Um, so you come up on the screen talking and when they haven't quite caught what you're saying, because maybe the camera's too far away, your mic's been like dodgy or whatever, and you have to re-record what you said in that moment. That must be very difficult to do. It's really difficult, especially when it's like an emotional scene. Because to get back into that moment and be able to deliver Ooh. it, um, so it can be it can be really difficult. Sometimes they'll say, "Right, we just need like twenty seconds of you crying." And it's like, okay. <laughs> so it's 
So you're essentially being a voiceover for yourself. Yeah, yeah. That's, um, yeah, I, I feel like people, uh, myself included, aren't completely aware with how much will go into the shooting on a production. Yeah, no, it's because if you think that like, it takes basically a week to shoot every 15 minutes of something. What? Which is crazy. What? In general, is, sometimes yeah. less if, yeah. they've got a, if they've got like double crews or really, really quick first AD. Um, but yeah, basically that's around what it is. So Sophie, we can talk about the production that you're the executive producer on. Um, I forgot the title, but did you, did you write this? Did you help write this? Did you buy the script from someone? How did this all come to be? So I was in Mad Fat Diary and this author uh, called Caroline Smales had written a book called The Drowning of Arthur Braxton. Um, and while she was writing it, she watched Mad Fat Diary and saw me and was like, that is Laurel. Like that is the character from my book. That's crazy. No way. That's amazing. Yeah. So she reached out on Twitter and um, was like, this, my book's been made into a movie. Um, I'd love to meet you. I'd love for you to play this part. So I went down to meet her and I met the producers of it. Um, and it was all great. And then I didn't hear anything for about two years. So I just randomly reached out to her one day and I was like, oh, is anything happening with this? And she told me that it basically wasn't happening. It'd fallen apart. And I'd just done a music video with a YouTuber called Luke Cutforth who him and his friend Josh were great filmmakers. Um, this music video had been so much fun to work on. And so I, they, they said that they wanted to make a feature film. So I was like, ooh, this could work. So I asked her if it was okay if I sent the book over and, and stuff. So I sent the book over and they were like, absolutely, we want to do this. So then we made a Kickstarter, um, raised 80,000 pounds on the Kickstarter. How much? Um, 80,000, which at the As time- As in eight zero, 80. 80, yeah, eight zero. Oh my God, fair play. Yeah, which at the time was, I think it was the most successful indie film Kickstarter at the time. Wow, fair enough. Congratulations um, on that. Thank you. Yeah, it was great. It was a crazy time to just watch it keep going up. Um, and then we made the film and then we got private investment from my dad who invested some money into it to, so we could make it better because like we said about film funding, a micro budget film is a million basically, or just under a million. So we were working on a micro, micro, micro budget to make this movie. Um, so we ended up having a budget of about 160,000. Uh, and then, yeah, we, we made it. So when is this due for release? Have you got a specific date yet? No, we don't. So it's, it's been about three years now in post-production because we've just hit so many walls. But cause it's, it's got a lot of special effects and things like that. It's set in a bathhouse and it's got a water nymph and it's got a magic well and it's got all sorts of things going on. <laughs> So, um, so is this is the, are these like walls that you've bumped into because of well hit sorry because of um, financial or has it just been un a matter of being unlucky? Both really, we've had financial difficulties with it, and then we've also had like th we didn't expect things to cost what they do, um, and then we've also had issues with like people just letting us down and things like that in the in the post production, um, but now it's just in its final final edit. 
Um, Luke said today that they're just working on the surround sound so it can be distributed and then it'll be going out to distribution in the next few weeks. So then we will know where it can be seen. Wow, this must be uh, exciting even more so because it probably feels like such a journey, a bit of a, a bit of a, an epic journey you've gone on with it. Yeah, definitely. I think it was 2013, 2014 when I first read the book. So to now have it Six as a movie. Six seven years. Yeah, it's, it's been a journey. <laughs> I mean, that, yeah, that's, uh, that's, 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 something, that's something else really, isn't it? So you expect this to be released next year? Yeah, it'll be released next year. Um, and yeah, I, mean, you know, I was about to say it's, it's kind of a blessing that it wasn't set to be released this year because that would have been a, another hurdle. At least, you know, next year, fingers crossed, it will actually be released. Um, is this something that your, uh, your investors or whatever are hoping to um, make a, a large profit on in terms of the business of it? Or see, this is the thing, as someone who is completely oblivious to the industry, how does this work now? Because I guess making a film... Even in, I mean, do, do indies, do they look for uh, a profit or is it just to make the film? Um, well, it would be nice to make a decent profit. But the thing with things like this is that you just don't know because it could either, it could, it'll probably come out and be watched and people enjoy it or it could end up like The Breakfast Club. Like you just, you just don't know. Indie films are a risk, but they can pay off really well for investors. It's, um, it is a, the, the 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 movie industry, the film industry, or whatever. It's a it is a very um, interesting one, I find, especially when you look into the business of films. Because as a viewer, it's not something. You, well, most viewers don't particularly consider the actual financial and monetary aspect of it. It's no, just kind of right, right. That film was great, and is you know, there's no idea what you've no idea what goes on behind the scenes. Um, so this is something that you'd want to do again in terms of getting involved. I mean, have you enjoyed it? Has it been stressful? Yeah, definitely. I think it's more stressful for Luke and Josh because they are very much behind. They've been there for all the editing and everything. Um, but I would like to have been more involved in that, I think. So next time I'd like to definitely be fully involved in everything, which I think and kind of have, I don't know, I'd, I'd like to create something that's like my baby. Is this, have you ever considered writing a script yourself? Yeah, I have. But I think there's so many incredible writers out there that I'd rather give someone, give someone put the opportunity to see their work be made. That's, that's, uh, I, I feel like a lot of creatives, especially when you've done one thing, they want to kind of do everything. Like, you know, yeah. you, you, get an, you, get a, you get an actor who's like, right, I want to direct, I want to produce, I want to write, I want to do this, I want to do that. Because I imagine it's whenever you've done one thing you want to get the high of doing something else too yeah I guess so and I think it, it's like you see something you're like wow I want to make that I want to have a go at doing that and it's it, it's definitely like I would love to have a go at directing I'd love to have a go at writing but I think if I had the opportunity to actually make it with funding I'd rather like have the confidence in someone else that they actually know what they're doing <laughs> Um, so obviously we, we've discussed your, uh, your acting, uh, now a lot of people may or may not know that you also do something which is very fucking cool. Uh, obviously, <laughs> obviously acting's, I'm not saying acting isn't cool. It's, it's amazing what you, what you've achieved. Um, I'd say it's more unique and, um, 
I think as soon as you kind of explain it, people are going to be like, wait, what? That's, that's amazing. What? People are going to be like, you're bringing this up now. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. I thought, I thought I'd, I thought I'd, you know, yeah. So for the people that don't know you also, um, I was about to say a mermaid academy, but um, <laughs> I mean, what's, what's, what's the, what's the best way of, the best way of, the way, best way of putting it? Um, I am a professional mermaid. It's probably <laughs> the best add, way to say it. I wish it. I could add sound effects at this point because that would be good. <laughs> um, so, I mean, please explain, elaborate to uh, elaborate. So, I um, where I am in Doncaster, I run a mermaid school, which does mermaids' kids parties, mermaid lessons, mermaid experiences, all things like that. People get to come and wear mermaid tails and learn how to be a mermaid. My age starts from six, six years old, but there is no upper age limit, so anyone can be a mermaid. And then I also do mermaid performances. So I've worked in Mallorca, Spain as a mermaid in hotels and bars and things like that, swimming around. Um, yeah, and basically just living my best mermaid life. So uh, in terms of being a mermaid, I imagine you've got to wear, well, unless you've got, what, what is, it, is it, a tail? Is it called a tail? Yeah, a mermaid tail. Yeah, so unless you magically grow one yourself, I imagine you have to wear one. How does one source one? Do you make it yourself? Is there a place you buy one? Um, how much does it weigh? How difficult is it to swim in it? So many so, questions. It depends on what kind of mermaid tail you want. If you want a standard, like, you can get, like, the ones the kids wear are, like, standard fabric ones. They cost about £50 each, and they have a plastic monofin in the bottom. And then you get up to your professional silicon tails, which start at two thousand pounds and weigh twenty kilos. Wow! Um, so if you're going to go into professionally, then generally that's what you go for. You can get high end fabric ones, which are about four hundred pounds. And then there's also companies making like in between ones that are like neoprene and silicon, and they're a bit cheaper. Um, but generally, your silicon ones are made to fit you because they're obviously molded to you. So they're made to your design, they're made to completely fit you, and then you just have to learn to swim in it. How long did it take you to learn to swim? Did you watch a YouTube tutorial or <laughs> did it just did it did it just come second nature to you? Well, I've been swimming like a mermaid as long as I can remember. Like as soon as I got in the water, I just pretend to be a mermaid. Um, but the so when I put the first mermaid tail I got on, that just came completely naturally. But I remember the first time I swam in my silicon tail, when I got that, I thought I was going to drown. I was like, how on earth am I going to do this? And it took me a few months of swimming in it to get to the point where I could do like parties and, and sessions in it. So you've, you've learned to uh, swim like a mermaid. How, how long does it take to teach someone how to swim like a mermaid? Um, depending on what their swim level is already, generally... It, it, if they can already do the dolphin kick, or which is basically like butterfly without the arms, um, then it's easy. Then they'll be straight into it. If they can't do that, that can normally take about 15 minutes to teach and then they're good to go. Generally, I can get the majority of people who come can, are, can swim like a mermaid by the end of the hour. Wow. Okay. That's, uh, <laughs> I want to do it myself now. Um, <laughs> um, so... This is something that you obviously teach yourself. Do you have you ever performed alongside other other mermaids as like a troop of mermaids? I don't know. What's what's a group of mermaids called? A pod. A pod. Oh, nice. Like orcas. Okay, that's, oh, <laughs> I like that. Um, 
So yeah, have you ever performed as like a uh, as like a pod of mermaids? Yeah. So when I was in Mallorca, I had one job, which was in a rooftop bar in Magaluf, which I don't know if you've been to Magaluf recently. Um, I've never been at all. Have you not? You're missing out. They built this hotel that has a bar where the swimming pool goes across the main strip of Magaluf and it's all glass underneath. So they hired me three times a week and then we got some of the girls who were good swimmers in the area and taught them how to be mermaids as well. And so there was three of us and we'd swim around this massive pool and it would make people obviously then come up to the bar. That must take some serious cardio, swimming like a mermaid. So does, does I'm assuming swimming like a mermaid is more difficult than swimming like a human. Yeah, especially that job, because that job was three hours, three times a week in a 20 kilo tail. I had abs of steel by the end of that summer. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Um, so obviously at the moment you've, you've not been, you know, with, with COVID and whatever, you, what, what have you, is you've been unable to um, be a mermaid and teach others and Etc. You've now branched out into something which, I, again, it's it's very cool how you're maintaining creativity through all of this. You're now um, running a what do you call it? A workshop? Not a workshop. It's more of um. Uh, it's it's like Christmas Christmas character visits, I suppose. Yeah, over Zoom. Yeah, so I'm doing a virtual Santa's Grotto, um, which the next one's happening in a few weeks. I've got a fantastic, fantastic Santa Claus. He's absolutely brilliant. And then I am the head elf, head of communications, Tinsel McJingle <laughs> from the North Pole. <laughs> Amazing. And then I'm also doing elf visits. So I'm going to like people's gardens as an elf and just oh. being a bit cheeky and taking them gifts and, and letters from Santa. That's so wholesome. It's so cute. The kids love it. Um, you, uh, you, you, sh- you showed me yesterday um, some, was it reindeer food? Yeah, I spent yesterday making reindeer food. So, is, it, is this something you make yourself, or how how does what, what, yeah? Tell me about this. I'm so curious. It's a very secret recipe. <laughs> oh, is it? Okay, I won't ask. <laughs> no, it's just porridge oats. Um, it's just porridge oats in a fancy bag. Um, but yeah, if you sprinkle it on your garden, and then Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer will land in your garden and eat the reindeer food. <laughs> I love it. I love it all. I love it all. It's so very. Um, <laughs> it's it's yeah it's uh i feel like everything you do in terms of well it's all it's obviously all acting what you're doing but away from well i guess it's a different form of stage isn't it really when you're doing uh being a mermaid or um you've got great range put it that way yeah um, <laughs> um it's uh it's been really fun talking to you sophie but before we go uh, there's one question i ask every single one of my guests okay and that is if i gave you a blank canvas what would you paint and why oh i've been thinking about this you know what would i paint um to be honest i can't paint at all my sister is an artist which i think makes it worse because i can't even try (laughs) because it just won't ever be as good um but i think i'd have to paint a mermaid wouldn't i like me as a mermaid or maybe you as a mermaid (laughs) <laughs> maybe i could paint you as a mermaid that'd be good <laughs> with, a, with, a, with a, the first mermaid with an afro yeah that'd be fantastic um well I, i'll take that I, <laughs> I guess you can't really give a reason why but um sophie thank you very much for your time it's been a lot of fun and i think a lot of people will enjoy listening to what is a, a very eclectic podcast thank you for having me it's been lovely thank you very much